0: Hello and welcome to episode number one hundred and eight of the Agro Innovations podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com/podcast, on Monday, October eighteenth, two thousand ten. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Aaron Jocelyn, who has done research on agroforestry systems in the Brazilian Amazon and is currently developing a PhD research project at the University of Georgia. Aaron Jocelyn, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Frank. So let's start by having us tell you having you tell us how you got involved doing agroforestry research in the Brazilian Amazon.
1: Well, I guess it really has its root in um, my Peace Corps service in Bolivia. Um, I worked with a couple of families on their farms, and actually one of the families from the town I lived in, in Comarapa, he um, had his farm out in, at the base of the cloud forest, and he took me out there, and he showed me what he was doing. He just picked up stuff from different magazines, and I guess some of the knowledge he had, he had already, and he was putting that to practice, and it, I just really fell in love with uh, that concept of, of doing it yourself, you know, being able to um, have a positive interaction with the land that you, that's around you. And um, then I did some traveling around, and one day this project opened up, the possibility of uh, doing work in Brazil, and um, so I, I took advantage of that, and it turned out to be great.
0: Okay, so tell us about your research design. I know you did some master's research down there. Um can you tell us a little bit about the design of that research? Okay, correct. Um the research that
1: I did was sort of a sub-project within a, a larger um project developed by the um in partnership with the Brazilian government and a German um development group and it was looking at fire-free alternatives to basically sweden agriculture low in low input farmers who don't have lots of capital to buy um, tractors or or lots and lots of fertilizer and um, in that region of the amazon the state of para um, which would fall in the the region of the eastern amazon um, slash and burn agriculture is the norm for low input farmers Um, so they have pretty much cycled through the vast majority of what we would call native forest or virgin forest, although very little of it is actually in, indeed virgin and they generally cycle through secondary forests um, in a maybe a hundred years ago they would be cycling through the same patch of forest every 25 or thirty years. but as population intensity has and population density has grown. Um, the rotation time has uh, been reduced to usually people have no more than 10 years between cropping cycles and usually it's down to about five. So the ability of the secondary forest to accumulate the nutrients necessary to fertilize the two years of crops, those nutrients aren't getting up into the vegetation that is eventually burned. Um, And The burning process itself actually causes a large loss of nutrients, specifically carbon. And that's not hard to imagine. And, you know, smoke is primarily composed of CO2, but also large losses of nitrogen. And and that also goes up in the smoke. Um, But you also get a lot of loss of calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium. And that generally gets lost through erosion, um, runoff, leaching, but that those elements don't usually get lost through, this, through volatilization, through smoke. And the concept that the project is working under was to develop some way to not burn the forest and, and therefore try to retain all those nutrients. And what they came up with was this giant mulching tractor. So basically a big John Deere tractor that has a really large mulching machine on the front of it. And it would drive and plow down a secondary forest, usually about seven or 10 years old is about what it could handle. Um, and that would be roughly a biomass of up to maybe 35 uh, metric tons per hectare. And it would push it down. And and while it's pushing it down, it's chipping it up and turning it into woody mulch. And it would leave that in a relatively, um, even layer across the surface and so that layer of mulch is perfect um, soil protection so you get essentially zero erosion because the rain is hitting that mulch first and then just filtering into the soil Um, and because of the lack of burning you lose nothing through smoke Um, and they've done quite a few publications from this uh, research project and it shows pretty conclusively that they have a very strong effect of preventing nutrient losses. Um, the agronomical side of that is that uh, during the first year of agriculture afterwards, um, that, that massive layer of mulch is just full of carbon and it's just sucking up all the nitrogen to decompose the, the mulch layer. And so there's a strong uh, nitrogen deficiency for the, for the crops. So there's a a need for, uh, specifically nitrogen fertilizer. Um, the, the need for the nitrogen fertilizer comes from the fact that the mulch layer is so full of carbon and it generally has a carbon to nitrogen ratio of about 200 to one. And for sustainable crop production, Or for for nitrogen to be mineralized into the soil for crops to take, um, it needs to be about 20 or 30 to 1. So there has to be a whole lot of decomposition before you can get to um, mineralized nitrogen levels that are sufficient for the crops. Um, So there's a strong need for um, nitrogen fertilizer. But after that first year, you can sustain two or three years of Crops um, generally, corn, rice, cassava, are, um, or sometimes even passion fruit, are the, the crops that people are generally growing in that region. And then after, say, your three or four years, um, do you get quite a bit of problems from weed infestations that just consume too much time to take, to control by hand. So. After that time period, people are generally letting the secondary forest begin to grow again, and during the regrowth period, there's a better stock of nutrients in the soil, so the secondary forest grows back much stronger and much healthier and and supplies a lot more nutrients than it would had it been burned. So, I think the results of of that project, called uh, Tipitamba, which is a... a indigenous word from the northeast of Brazil. I'm not exactly sure what Tipitamba means, but the the results of that project were pretty conclusive, and um, the Brazilian government has um, bought into that project and has ex has moved has supplied tractors to several different communities throughout the Amazon, from the states of Roraima to Amazonas to Pará. Tomato Grosso, Acre, and Hondonia, um, And it's, it's been very successful. My project within that was um, planting five native species of trees and intercropping that with uh, cassava, locally known as manioc. And one of our trees was a nitrogen fixer, which is what we were really trying to discover was whether the use of a nitrogen-fixing tree would have a positive effect on, first of all, the other trees, but also the, uh, the crop. The results of our project showed that the, the amount of nitrogen fixation didn't really have much of an effect on the other trees or the crop. However, um, part of, the, of our project involved also fertilizing with phosphorus and potassium. And the phosphorus and potassium fertilization had just a phenomenal response. It's pretty much showing that those soils were phosphorus deficient first before the nitrogen deficiency. So um, we grew a very valuable hardwood, uh, Cedrella odorata, which is known to us as cedar, which is in the same family as mahogany. It's a wildly expensive hardwood. Um, we grew saba, which um, is in Asia is known as kapok, um, It grows all throughout Central America and South America as well as in Asia. We grew parika, which is a uh, very light wooded tree, um, generally used for things like toothpicks and matchsticks and um, the little wooden boxes that people carry their vegetables to market with, things of that nature. And then the inga edulis, which is um, the nitrogen fixer, which also has a edible fruit pod. Um, it's good for... Cattle forage, um, the wood is somewhat useful for like fence posts and things of that nature. So we were really trying to look at um, an agroforestry system that would supply a variety of different um, woods or forest products to a low input farmer throughout the lifespan of, a, um, of his farm or throughout the lifespan of an agroforestry system so that when come back to that same plot of land in 15 or 20 years, or even 10 years, they could harvest all of the inga and all of the parika and all of the um, fava and sell that, do whatever it is that that, that can be done with those, and leave the cedar trees and the seba as like a long-term investment. But those trees would be pretty far spaced out. So you could have an agricultural crop underneath that. So you could get multiple uses out of the same piece of land, um, which is pretty strongly in contrast to what most low-input farmers are doing or able to do in in that region.
0: So as you talk about all these things, I have a lot of questions in my mind. Um, One of the first ones would be, uh, why is it that it's so difficult for farmers to be able to implement something along these agroforestry lines I mean it seems pretty logical that they would do so and it seems more profitable that they would do so as well is it lack of capital or is it lack of know-how or is it all of the above could you shed some light on that
1: I think that the lack of access to capital is probably the main driving force Um, uh, agrarian reform it's still a, a huge burning issue throughout the country and burning I mean literally there's um, still um, violence in the countryside related to um, land reform issues, um, and the the federal government, and local governments, and state governments, and, and the banks that are integrated in, and work through those institutions don't see um, lending money to smallholding farmers as an investment that they an investment risk that they want to take on. And some studies published recently showing that um that uh, that is actually a, a faulty um, viewpoint that small holding farmers are more reliable in terms of paying back their loans are generally much smaller, so if they fail, the risk is much less whereas um large scale soybean and cattle ranch farmers take can get loans for millions of dollars worth and those are extremely risky because they're um if they pay it back you know the banks doing just fine but that's a a huge potential loss but um i would say that the the ability of small holding farmers to get capital is extremely limited um a lot of this information is actually just recycling knowledge that um indigenous farmers um have but are discouraged from implementing or um, in 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 other ways, um, don't have the the ability to implement, and some of that is cultural. Um, a lot of the people that are farming small scale in the Amazon are are not um, historically from there. A lot of the um, migratory cycles throughout the history of Brazil include people moving from the northeast, which is um, semi-arid. In some places, it's pretty much a desert, um, and they're moving into the Amazon basin, into the Amazon um, of Pará, specifically, which has a totally different climate regime and has a very different um, interface between the farmer and, and the land. And a lot of those techniques of indigenous farmers are forgotten about or discarded or implementing techniques that come from other regions and so there's a, a large uh, lack of, of appropriate knowledge or appropriate technology being used um, but when you get down to the fact that people that are doing small smallholder agriculture are generally using extremely limited technologies hand tools um, hand planting and a lot of family labor, and uh, when it comes to harvesting or planting time, the family itself is off- oftentimes not sufficient to do all of the work that they, that needs to get done. Um, so, they they need capital to hire people to do the field work, or they need capital to to get machines or rent machines even, or capital to buy. better seed stock or capital to buy um, fertilizers. And and those things, they just can't get that capital.
0: Okay, so you um, are developing a research project that you have described as chop and char versus chop and mulch versus slash and burn. Tell us about the nature of this research and why is it significant and how are you moving forward with it?
2: Okay, so the the chop and char... Process would utilize a secondary forest, um, probably anywhere from seven to maybe up to 20 years of age. Um, and after felling the the large stems, you'd um, char that in in a in a, an oven. Um, the project that we're designing would utilize um, what in Brazil is called a Habucanchi, which is essentially just a an earthen kiln. A little tiny mud hut and with a door, and you put the wood inside of that and put it on a fire, and then close the door so it starves it of oxygen, and that's the general process of making charcoal. Um, after the wood is charred, it would then be taken out, ground up into the finest bits possible, and then applied back over the soil. Um, the purpose of this is to. Um, First of all, store the carbon from the the biomass of the forest on the soil again. But then once that um, biochar begins working its way into the soil through uh, bioturbation and other processes, or even through um, the use of farming implements, um, once it's well incorporated into the soil, the affinity for soil microbiota to use the, uh, the charcoal bits as refugia and, and uh, sort of a symbiotic relationship between the soil microbes and their ability to um, promote the accumulation of soil carbon, um, which is a huge uh, impact in terms of um, global warming gases, you know, bringing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then putting it back into the soil. But another aspect of charcoal in the, when used in agricultural settings are the charged surfaces of the charcoal itself which um, retain nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and calcium and magnesium. They retain those uh, nutrients on the surface of the charcoal part- particles and they are Ionically bonded. So they're very easy to remove to move back and forth between soil solution and the charged surface. And in that situation, um, the roots of any plant would have relatively easy access to those nutrients. Um, the reason why this is different from if you just in the normal soil solution, um, ions such as uh, phosphorus, which exist in a state of phosphate in the soil. Um, have a very strong bonding capacity with clay colloids, um, clay particles in the soil. And after a a relatively short amount of time, say maybe a week or maybe up to a a couple of months depending on the temperature, that phosphorus will get bound so tightly inside of the clay that it's no longer available to the plant. Um, And that's, that's a huge problem in tropical soils because the the clay content is very high, the very highly weathered soils, so the, the native nutrition is quite low and, and phosphorus deficiency is often a, a huge problem in agricultural terms. So, the addition of charcoal to the soils um, stimulates a very different uh, relationship between plant roots and, and active nutrients in the soil. Um, we have seen in the Amazonian dark earths or the terra preta soils extremely high levels of all sorts of nutrients, specifically calcium and phosphorus, which are two nutrients that plants need in, in much higher quantities than, than or not much higher quantities, but are often much more limiting to plant growth in the tropics. So the the advantage of the charcoal to the soil is twofold or quite possibly even more than just twofold, but specifically um, augmenting soil carbon or soil organic material, but also increasing uh, fertility levels of the soil by, by enhancing the exchange capacity of the soil in terms of nutrients like nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, and, and all of the other Macronutrients and micronutrients as well.
0: Well, the Terra Preta soils are something uh, that has gotten a little bit of press here and there, but why don't you tell us a little bit about these soils, um, where they occur, and what their significance is, and, and what they can tell us about soil management in past societies as well?
2: The Terra Preta soils are concentrated almost entirely in the Amazon basin. Um, So from Brazil, and they've uh, uncovered quite a few in Colombia and Venezuela and even into Peru, quite possibly they exist in Bolivia and Ecuador and possibly even the Guianas. Um, There is some evidence that there may be some soils with very similar properties in the African continent as well, in the tropical regions. Um, I haven't seen any indication that there are historically comparable soils in the Asian continent although they may be there. Um, the ecological importance of them could be quite uh, amazing, quite, could be very uh, influential in that the historical soils, the anthropological soils that we have discovered we know are many magnitudes higher in terms of carbon retention and soil organic material in those soils than neighboring soils that have not been affected by uh, these processes. So we know that that these soils are capable of retaining very much higher levels of carbon, which in the context of of global warming gases should be pretty apparent. The formation of these soils is somewhat unknown. Um, And there's quite a bit of active research in the United States at places like Cornell University and also in universities in Brazil like Piracicaba that are trying to recreate them. Um, What we know about them is that these soils contain very high levels of um, pyrolyzed carbon. So the the thought process is that that, uh, charcoal in one form or another was added to these soils. Um, these soils also contain very high levels of calcium and bone fragments and shell fragments. Um, so the thinking is that the people who created these soils were uh, conscientiously adding things like turtle shells or fish bones or turtle bones or any, any sort of animals that they might have um, been consuming. They added the bones and, and eggs of these to the soils. But also they're finding a lot of pottery fragments. Which was one of the keys to the people who discovered these soils that um, that these were in fact created by people, um, because theoretically it's possible that in just random distribution throughout a forest you might have areas that had accumulated more uh, charred wood from forest fires, or might have had more higher turtle populations or whatever. But the fact that the, that these all of these tepetate soils contain um, pottery fragments was the key indicator that they were, in fact, created by people. Um, And so that researchers have a relatively good idea of what went into the soils to make them this way. But what is unknown is the length of time that it takes to create them and exactly how they were made. Was it purely intentional, Did, did the people who made these soils, was it their intent to make these soils or was it some, something more along the lines of kind of a happy accident that they were accumulating um, these components in waste pits and then the waste pits filled up and then they just made another one somewhere else and then over time they, uh, these soils were just created over larger scales. Um, it seems that the people who created these soils were aware of their um, Fertility and their and their utility because of the of those um, fertility enhances and so there is uh, historical evidence that they were used for agriculture in in the pre-Columbian past and there's uh, strong evidence now that that um, forest dwelling people seek out these soils and prize them very highly and use them very actively for agriculture. Um, the potential to recreate them is obviously there. We have all the components that are necessary to recreate these soils and that's where the, the focus of uh, research is right now. The, the results that are coming back are, are extremely variable. Uh, some publications are showing that you know adding charcoal to the soil would actually evolve more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than if you hadn't placed it there. Other uh, studies are showing that um, adding charcoal to the soil will increase soil carbon retention a hundredfold over an estimated lifespan. So, so far, we're getting extremely variable results, um, and that's somewhat due to the, the nature of, of the charcoal itself, because when you make charcoal, some of it exists in, in what they call pyrolyzed form. It's a highly recalcitrant um, carbon Ring that that resists decay for thousands of years, and other parts of the charcoal are more decomposable. So you'll evolve those off as of CO2 in, in a relatively short time frame, maybe just a year or two. But then part of it will remain as the pyrolyzed carbon for thousands of years. So it's the pyrolyzed carbon that the the research is focused on: how to how to more efficiently pyrolyzed wood, um, how to apply it in ways that that enhance um, soil organic material increases, um, and also how to utilize the the charcoal in a way that not only stores carbon but also enhances fertility. Um, And as far as that goes, the charcoal itself does not act as a fertilizer. It acts, it's more like a nutrient sponge. Um, so if you add uh, recommended levels of, of charcoal to the soil, in and of itself it will not change the soil fertility. It will probably raise the pH, which is very beneficial in tropical soils where the soil is often quite acid in the range of pH 4 to 5 is, would be very typical. Um, but once you add the charcoal, if the farmer were to add organic sources of fertilizer, like manures, then that manure would get bound to the charcoal in an exchangeable form so that the plants could have access to it. In, in comparison to a lot of manures that are added to soils worldwide, um, you end up losing some of it through leaching um, down through the soil profile. whereas in, in to uh, the soils or the attempts to recreate them, uh, those nutrients would not be lost in the soil; they would be retained on the on the charcoal surface. So you get a much more efficient cycling system within the soil, um, and the interaction between plants and and soils is, is obviously key to agriculture. So, when um, if you're if you're a farmer adding organic sources to a a charcoal-enhanced soil, get much better cycling and get um, much more access to the nutrients that you've applied. This will also work for farmers who are applying um, inorganic uh, fertilizers like NPK or or, or whatever. Um, Those nutrients would also get bound to the the charcoal. So, in terms of soil fertility, the the use of charcoal is... uh, it almost seems like a no brainer in that it has these properties that enhance the uh, cycling between plant and soil, which is what um, fertility, what people are looking for when they, when they speak about soil fertility.
0: Well, one of the things uh, we had kind of talked about earlier was um, episode number 18 of the Agro Innovations podcast, which is an interview with Ron Golden, who's talking about mobile uh, paralysis. How does this tie in with some of the things that you're talking about?
2: Well, the use of a mobile pyrolysis machine would be absolutely ideal in terms of expanding the technology of uh, biochar applications to to soil in, in any context anywhere in the world. Um, whether it would be a temperate region or a tropical region, um, lowland tropics, high-altitude tropics, um, it it wouldn't really matter too much, that that technological advancement would be just a huge bonus for for people that are looking for more sustainable and uh, more intensive forms of agriculture. Um, Because one of the main limitations to biochar applications to agricultural soils is the fact that wood is very bulky and it weighs a lot. And to, to, you have to transport it from, from where the source of the wood comes from to a plant and then back to the site would would render the benefits of, of the fertility aspect um, very uneconomical. And so the, the limitation for that sort of application is largely economic. Um, transportation costs and uh, time costs would, would render... Typical or um, centralized charcoal production would render it uneconomical. On a smaller scale, having a portable device like that uh, would make make it very accessible on a community level and even down to the individual farmer level. Um, I think that if um, NGOs or governments themselves would were to make a concerted effort to make this technology available to uh, farmers across the economic spectrum, I think that we would begin to see a widespread utilization of this technology. Independent of whether farmers are interested in getting an organic label or independent of their um, desire to be an organic farmer or a green farmer or an ecologically conscientious farmer. I think that we would see the utilization of this technology because it has very real and and nearly immediate impact on on fertility of, of soils.
0: Well, Aaron Jocelyn on that note, um I'd like to thank you very much for the research that you're doing and I'd also like to thank you for uh, sharing your information with us here on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Frank. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: That concludes my interview with Aaron Jocelyn. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I'd like to remind listeners that this and all episodes of the podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. There is a link to that on the webpage for the Agro Innovations Podcast. There are also links for you to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or via an RSS feed. And you can check me out. I am on Twitter. At agroinnovations is the Twitter ID. And also on Facebook, there's a link to both the Twitter and the Facebook pages on the homepage agroinnovations.com. If you do friend me on Facebook, just let me know that you are a podcast listener. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.